Chapter Seven of Democracy by Henry Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When he reached his rooms that afternoon, Senator Radcliffe found there, as he expected, a choice company of friends and admirers who had beguiled their leisure hours since noon by cursing him in every variety of profane language that experience could suggest and impatience stimulate. On his part, had he consulted his own feelings only, he would then and there have turned them out and locked the doors behind them. So far as silent maledictions were concerned, no profanity of theirs could hold its own against the intensity and deliberation with which, as he found himself approaching his own door, he expressed between his teeth his views in respect to their eternal interests. Nothing could be less suited to his present humour than the society which awaited him in his rooms. He groaned in spirit as he sat down at his writing-table and looked about him. Dozens of office-seekers were besieging the house, men whose patriotic services in the last election called loudly for recognition from a grateful country. They brought their applications to the senator with an entreaty that he would endorse and take charge of them. Several members and senators who felt that Radcliffe had no reason for existence except to fight their battle for patronage were lounging about his room, reading newspapers, or beguiling their time with tobacco in various forms, at long intervals making dull remarks, as though they were more weary than their constituents of the atmosphere that surrounds the grandest government the sun ever shone upon. Several newspaper correspondents, eager to barter their news for Ratcliffe's hints or suggestions, appeared from time to time on the scene, and dropping into a chair by Ratcliffe's desk, whispered with him in mysterious tones. Thus the senator worked on, hour after hour, mechanically doing what was required of him, signing papers without reading them, answering remarks without hearing them, hardly looking up from his desk, and appearing immersed in labour. This was his protection against curiosity and garrulity. The pretense of work was the curtain he drew between himself and the world. Behind this curtain his mental operations went on, undisturbed by what was said about him, while he heard all that was said, and said little or nothing himself. His followers respected this privacy and left him alone. He was their prophet, and had a right to seclusion. He was their chieftain, and while he sat in his monosyllabic solitude, his ragged tail reclined in various attitudes about him, and occasionally one man spoke or another swore. Newspapers and tobacco were their resource in periods of absolute silence. A shade of depression rested on the faces and the voices of Clan Ratcliffe that evening, as is not unusual with forces on the eve of battle. Their remarks came at longer intervals, and were more pointless and random than usual. There was a want of elasticity in their bearing and tone, partly coming from sympathy with the evident depression of their chief, partly from the portents of the time. The President was to arrive within forty-eight hours, and as yet there was no sign that he properly appreciated their services. There were signs only too unmistakable that he was painfully misled and deluded, that his countenance was turned wholly in another direction, and that all their sacrifices were counted as worthless. There was reason to believe that he came with the deliberate purpose of making war upon Ratcliffe and breaking him down, 
of refusing to bestow patronage on them, and of bestowing it wherever it would injure them most deeply. At the thought that their honestly earned harvest of foreign missions and consulates, department bureaus, customs-house and revenue offices, postmasterships, Indian agencies, and army and navy contracts, might now be wrung from their grasp by the selfish greed of a mere accidental intruder, a man whom nobody wanted and everyone ridiculed, their natures rebelled, and they felt that such things must not be, that there could be no more hope for democratic government if such things were possible. At this point they invariably became excited, lost their equanimity, and swore. Then they fell back on their faith in Ratcliffe. If any man could pull them through, he could. After all, the President must first reckon with him, and he was an uncommon tough customer to tackle. Perhaps, however, even their faith in Ratcliffe might have been shaken, could they at that moment have looked into his mind and understood what was passing there. Ratcliffe was a man vastly their superior, and he knew it. He lived in a world of his own, and had instincts of refinement. Whenever his affairs went unfavorably, these instincts revived, and for a time swept all his nature with them. He was now filled with disgust and cynical contempt for every form of politics. During long years he had done his best for his party. He had sold himself to the devil, coined his heart's blood, toiled with a dogged persistence that no day-laborer ever conceived, and all for what? To be rejected as its candidate? To be put under the harrow of a small Indiana farmer who made no secret of the intention to corral him, and, as he elegantly expressed it, to take his hide and tallow? Radcliffe had no great fear of losing his hide, but he felt aggrieved that he should be called upon to defend it, and that this should be the result of twenty years' devotion. Like most men in the same place, he did not stop to cast up both columns of his account with the party, nor to ask himself the question that lay at the heart of his grievance, how far had he served his party, and how far himself. He was in no humour for self-analysis. This requires more repose of mind than he could then command. As for the President, from whom he had not heard a whisper since the insolent letter to Grimes, which he had taken care not to show, the Senator felt only a strong impulse to teach him better sense and better manners. But as for political life, the events of the last six months were calculated to make any man doubt its value. He was quite out of sympathy with it. He hated the sight of his tobacco-chewing, newspaper-reading satellites, with their hats tipped at every angle except the right one, and their feet everywhere except on the floor. Their conversation bored him, and their presence was a nuisance. He would not submit to this slavery longer. He would have given his senatorship for a civilized house like Mrs. Lee's, with a woman like Mrs. Lee at its head, and twenty thousand a year for life. He smiled his only smile that evening, when he thought how rapidly she would rout every man jack of his political following out of her parlours, and how meekly they would submit to banishment into a back office with an oilcloth carpet and two cane chairs. He felt that Mrs. Lee was more necessary to him than the presidency itself. He could not go on without her. He needed human companionship, some Christian comfort for his old age, some avenue of communication with that social world which made his present surroundings look cold and foul, some touch of that refinement of mind and morals, beside which his own seemed coarse. He felt unutterably lonely. 
He wished Mrs. Lee had asked him home to dinner, but Mrs. Lee had gone to bed with a headache. He should not see her again for a week. Then his mind turned back upon their morning at Mount Vernon, and bethinking himself of Mrs. Sam Baker, he took a sheet of note-paper and wrote a line to Wilson Keene, Esquire, at Georgetown, requesting him to call, if possible, the next morning towards one o'clock at the Senator's rooms on a matter of business. Wilson Keene was chief of the Secret Service Bureau in the Treasury Department, and as the depository of all secrets, was often called upon for assistance, which he was very good-natured in furnishing to senators, especially if they were likely to be secretaries of the Treasury. This note dispatched, Mr. Ratcliffe fell back into his reflective mood, which led him apparently into still lower depths of discontent, until with a muttered oath he swore he could stand no more of this, and suddenly rising he informed his visitors that he was sorry to leave them, but he felt rather poorly and was going to bed, and to bed he went while his guests departed, each as his business or desires might point him, some to drink whisky and some to repose. On Sunday morning Mr. Ratcliffe, as usual, went to church. He always attended morning service at the Methodist Episcopal Church, not wholly on the ground of religious conviction, but because a large number of his constituents were church-going people, and he would not willingly shock their principles so long as he needed their votes. In church he kept his eyes closely fixed upon the clergyman, and at the end of the sermon he could say with truth that he had not heard a word of it, although the respectable minister was gratified by the attention his discourse had received from the senator from Illinois, an attention all the more praiseworthy because of the engrossing public cares which must at that moment have distracted the senator's mind. In this last idea the minister was right. Mr. Ratcliffe's mind was greatly distracted by public cares, and one of his strongest reasons for going to church at all was that he might get an hour or two of undisturbed reflection. During the entire service he was absorbed in carrying on a series of imaginary conversations with the new President. He brought up in succession every form of proposition which the President might make to him, every trap which could be laid for him, every sort of treatment he might expect, so that he could not be taken by surprise, and his frank, simple nature could never be at a loss. One object, however, long escaped him. Supposing, what was more than probable, that the President's opposition to Radcliffe's declared friends made it impossible to force any of them into office, it would then be necessary to try some new man, not obnoxious to the President, as a candidate for the Cabinet. Who should this be? Ratcliffe pondered long and deeply, searching out a man who combined the most powerful interests with the fewest enmities. This subject was still uppermost at the moment when service ended. Ratcliffe pondered over it as he walked back to his rooms. Not till he reached his own door did he come to a conclusion. Carson would do. Carson of Pennsylvania. The President had probably never heard of him. Mr. Wilson Keene was waiting the Senator's return, a heavy man with a square face and good-natured, active blue eyes, a man of few words and those well considered. The interview was brief. 
After apologizing for breaking in upon Sunday with business, Mr. Ratcliffe excused himself on the ground that so little time was left before the close of the session. A bill now before one of his committees, on which a report must soon be made, involved matters to which it was believed that the late Samuel Baker, formerly a well-known lobby agent in Washington, held the only clue. He being dead, Mr. Ratcliffe wished to know whether he had left any papers behind him, and in whose hands these papers were, or whether any partner or associate of his was acquainted with his affairs. Mr. Keene made a note of the request, merely remarking that he had been very well acquainted with Baker, and also a little with his wife, who was supposed to know his affairs as well as he knew them himself, and who was still in Washington. He thought he could bring the information in a day or two. As he then rose to go, Mr. Ratcliffe added that entire secrecy was necessary, as the interests involved in obstructing the search were considerable, and it was not well to wake them up. Mr. Keene assented and went his way. All this was natural enough and entirely proper, at least so far as appeared on the surface. Had Mr. Keene been so curious in other people's affairs as to look for the particular legislative measure which lay at the bottom of Mr. Ratcliffe's inquiries, he might have searched among the papers of Congress a very long time, and found himself greatly puzzled at last. In fact, there was no measure of the kind. The whole story was a fiction. Mr. Ratcliffe had scarcely thought of Baker since his death, until the day before when he had seen his widow on the Mount Vernon steamer, and had found her in relations with Carrington. Something in Carrington's habitual attitude and manner towards himself had long struck him as peculiar, and this connection with Mrs. Baker had suggested to the Senator the idea that it might be well to have an eye on both. Mrs. Baker was a silly woman, as he knew, and there were old transactions between Ratcliffe and Baker of which he might be informed, but which Ratcliffe had no wish to see brought within Mrs. Lee's ken. As for the fiction invented to set Keene in motion, it was an innocent one. It harmed nobody. Ratcliffe selected this particular method of inquiry because it was the easiest, safest, and most effectual. If he were always to wait until he could afford to tell the precise truth, business would very soon be at a standstill, and his career at an end. This little matter disposed of, the senator from Illinois passed his afternoon in calling upon some of his brother senators, and the first of those whom he honoured with the visit was Mr. Krebs of Pennsylvania. There were many reasons which now made the cooperation of that high-minded statesman essential to Mr. Ratcliffe. The strongest of them was that the Pennsylvania delegation in Congress was well disciplined and could be used with peculiar advantage for purposes of pressure. Ratcliffe's success in his contest with the new president depended on the amount of pressure he could employ. To keep himself in the background, and to fling over the head of the raw chief magistrate a web of intertwined influences, any one of which alone would be useless, but which taken together were not to be broken through, to revive the lost art of the Roman retiarius, who from a safe distance threw his net over his adversary before attacking with a dagger. This was Ratcliffe's intention, and towards this he had been directing all his manipulation for weeks past. How much bargaining, and how many promises he found it necessary to make, was known to himself alone. About this time Mrs. Lee was a little surprised to find Mr. Gore speaking with entire confidence of having Ratcliffe's support in his application for the Spanish mission, for she had rather imagined that Gore was not a favourite with Ratcliffe. 
She noticed, too, that Schneidekoupon had come back again, and spoke mysteriously of interviews with Ratcliffe, of attempts to unite the interests of New York and Pennsylvania, and his countenance took on a dark and dramatic expression, as he proclaimed that no sacrifice of the principle of protection should be tolerated. Schneidekoupon disappeared as suddenly as he came, and from Sybil's innocent complaints of his spirits and temper, Mrs. Lee jumped to the conclusion that Mr. Ratcliffe, Mr. Clinton, and Mr. Krebs had for the moment combined to sit heavily upon poor Schneidekoupon, and to remove his disturbing influence from the scene, at least until other men should get what they wanted. These were merely the trifling incidents that fell within Mrs. Lee's observation. She felt an atmosphere of bargain and intrigue, but she could only imagine how far it extended. Even Carrington, when she spoke to him about it, only laughed and shook his head. "'Those matters are private, my dear Mrs. Lee. You and I are not meant to know such things.' This Sunday afternoon Mr. Ratcliffe's object was to arrange the little manoeuvre about Carson of Pennsylvania, which had disturbed him in church. His efforts were crowned with success. Krebs accepted Carson, and promised to bring him forward at ten minutes' notice, should the emergency arise. Ratcliffe was a great statesman. The smoothness of his manipulation was marvellous. No other man in politics, indeed no other man who had ever been in politics in this country, could, his admirers said, have brought together so many hostile interests, and made so fantastic a combination. Some men went so far as to maintain that he would rope in the President himself before the old man had time to swap knives with him. The beauty of his work consisted in the skill with which he evaded questions of principle. As he wisely said, the issue now involved was not one of principle, but of power. The fate of that noble party to which they all belonged, and which had a record that could never be forgotten, depended on their letting principle alone. Their principle must be the want of principles. There were indeed individuals who said in reply that Ratcliffe had made promises which could never be carried out, and there were almost superhuman elements of discord in the combination, but as Ratcliffe shrewdly rejoined, he only wanted it to last a week, and he guessed his promises would hold it up for that time. Such was the situation when on Monday afternoon the President-elect arrived in Washington, and the comedy began. The new president was, almost as much as Abraham Lincoln or Franklin Pierce, an unknown quantity in political mathematics. In the national convention of the party, nine months before, after some dozens of fruitless ballots, in which Ratcliffe wanted but three votes of a majority, his opponents had done what he was now doing. They had laid aside their principles and set up for their candidate a plain Indiana farmer whose political experience was limited to stump-speaking in his native state, and to one term as governor. They had pitched upon him, not because they thought him competent, but because they hoped by doing so to detach Indiana from Ratcliffe's following, and they were so successful that within fifteen minutes Ratcliffe's friends were routed, and the presidency had fallen upon this new political Buddha. He had begun his career as a stone-cutter in a quarry, and was not unreasonably proud of the fact. During the campaign this incident had, of course, filled a large space in the public mind, or more exactly, in the public eye. The stone-cutter of the Wabash, he was sometimes called, at others the Hoosier Quarryman, but his favourite appellation was Old Granite, 
although this last endearing name, owing to an unfortunate similarity of sound, was seized upon by his opponents and distorted into old granny. He had been painted on many thousand yards of cotton sheeting, either with a terrific sledge-hammer, smashing the skulls, which figured as paving-stones, of his political opponents, or splitting by gigantic blows a huge rock typical of the opposing party. His opponents, in their turn, had paraded illuminations representing the quarrymen in the garb of a state's prison convict, breaking the heads of Ratcliffe and other well-known political leaders with a very feeble hammer, or, as old granny in pauper's rags, hopelessly repairing with the same heads the impossible roads which typified the ill-conditioned and miry ways of his party. But these violations of decency and good sense were universally reproved by the virtuous, and it was remarked with satisfaction that the purest and most highly cultivated newspaper editors on his side, without excepting those of Boston itself, agreed with one voice that the stone-cutter was a noble type of man, perhaps the very noblest that had appeared to adorn this country since the incomparable Washington. That he was honest, all admitted, that is to say, all who voted for him, this is a general characteristic of all new presidents. He himself took great pride in his homespun honesty, which is a quality peculiar to nature's noblemen, owing nothing, as he conceived, to politicians, but sympathizing through every fibre of his unselfish nature with the impulses and aspirations of the people, he affirmed it to be his first duty to protect the people from those vultures, as he called them, those wolves in sheep's clothing, those harpies, those hyenas, the politicians, epithets which, as generally interpreted, meant Radcliffe and Radcliffe's friends. His cardinal principle in politics was hostility to Radcliffe, yet he was not vindictive. He came to Washington determined to be the father of his country, to gain a proud immortality, and a re-election. Upon this gentleman, Radcliffe had let loose all the forms of pressure which could be set in motion either in or out of Washington. From the moment when he had left his humble cottage in southern Indiana, he had been captured by Radcliffe's friends and smothered in demonstrations of affection. They had never allowed him to suggest the possibility of ill-feeling. They had assumed as a matter of course that the most cordial attachment existed between him and his party. On his arrival in Washington they systematically cut him off from contact with any influences but their own. This was not a very difficult thing to do, for great as he was he liked to be told of his greatness, and they made him feel himself a colossus. Even the few personal friends in his company were manipulated with the utmost care, and their weaknesses put to use before they had been in Washington a single day. Not that Ratcliffe had anything to do with all this underhand and groveling intrigue. Mr. Ratcliffe was a man of dignity and self-respect, who left details to his subordinates. He waited calmly until the President, recovered from the fatigues of his journey, should begin to feel the effect of a Washington atmosphere. Then, on Wednesday morning, Mr. Ratcliffe left his rooms an hour earlier than usual, on his way to the Senate, and called at the President's hotel. He was ushered into a large apartment in which the new chief magistrate was holding court, although at the sight of Ratcliffe the other visitors edged away, or took their hats and left the room. 
The President proved to be a hard-featured man of sixty, with a hooked nose and thin, straight, iron-gray hair. His voice was rougher than his features, and he received Ratcliffe awkwardly. He had suffered since his departure from Indiana. Out there it had seemed a mere flea-bite, as he expressed it, to brush Ratcliffe aside, but in Washington the thing was somehow different. Even his own Indiana friends looked grave when he talked of it, and shook their heads. They advised him to be cautious and to gain time, to lead Ratcliffe on, and if possible to throw on him the responsibility of a quarrel. He was, therefore, like a brown bear undergoing the process of taming, very ill-tempered, very rough, and at the same time very much bewildered and a little frightened. Ratcliffe sat ten minutes with him, and obtained information in regard to pains which the President had suffered during the previous night, in consequence, as he believed, of an overindulgence in fresh lobster, a luxury in which he had found a diversion from the cares of state. So soon as this matter was explained and condoled upon, Ratcliffe rose and took leave. Every device known to politicians was now in full play against the Hoosier quarrymen. State delegations with contradictory requests were poured in upon him, among which that of Massachusetts presented as its only prayer the appointment of Mr. Gore to the Spanish mission. Difficulties were invented to embarrass and worry him. False leads were suggested, and false information carefully mingled with true. A wild dance was kept up under his eyes from daylight to midnight, until his brain reeled with the effort to follow it. Means were also found to convert one of his personal, confidential friends, who had come with him from Indiana, and who had more brains or less principle than the others. From him every word of the President was brought directly to Ratcliffe's ear. Early on Friday morning Mr. Thomas Lord, a rival of the late Samuel Baker, and heir to his triumphs, appeared in Ratcliffe's rooms, while the Senator was consuming his lonely egg and chop. Mr. Lord had been chosen to take general charge of the presidential party, and to direct all matters connected with Ratcliffe's interests. Some people might consider this the work of a spy. He looked on it as a public duty. He reported that old Granny had at last showed signs of weakness. Late the previous evening, when, according to his custom, he was smoking his pipe in company with his kitchen cabinet of followers, he had again fallen upon the subject of Ratcliffe and with a volley of oaths had sworn that he would show him his place yet, and that he meant to offer him a seat in the cabinet that would make him sicker than a stuck hog. From this remark, and some explanatory hints that followed, it seemed that the quarryman had abandoned his scheme of putting Ratcliffe to immediate political death, and had now undertaken to invite him into a cabinet which was to be specially constructed to thwart and humiliate him. The President, it appeared, warmly applauded the remark of one councillor, that Radcliffe was safer in the Cabinet than in the Senate, and that it would be easy to kick him out when the time came. Radcliffe smiled grimly as Mr. Lord, with much clever mimicry, described the President's peculiarities of language and manner, but he said nothing and waited for the event. The same evening came a note from the President's private secretary, requesting his attendance, if possible, to-morrow, Saturday morning, at ten o'clock. The note was curt and cool. Ratcliffe merely sent back word that he would come, and felt a little regret that the President should not have known enough etiquette to understand that this verbal answer was intended as a hint to improve his manners. 
He did come accordingly, and found the President looking blacker than before. This time there was no avoiding of tender subjects. The President meant to show Ratcliffe by the decision of his course that he was master of the situation. He broke at once into the middle of the matter. "'I sent for you,' he said, "'to consult with you about my cabinet. Here is a list of the gentlemen I intend to invite into it. You will see that I have got you down for the Treasury. Will you look at the list and say what you think of it?' Ratcliffe took the paper, but laid it at once on the table without looking at it. "'I can have no objection,' said he, "'to any cabinet you may appoint, provided I am not included in it. My wish is to remain where I am. There I can serve your administration better than in the cabinet.' "'Then you refuse?' growled the President. "'By no means. I only decline to offer any advice or even to hear the names of my proposed colleagues, until it is decided that my services are necessary. If they are, I shall accept without caring with whom I serve." The President glared at him with an uneasy look. What was to be done next? He wanted time to think, but Ratcliffe was there and must be disposed of. He involuntarily became more civil. "'Mr. Ratcliffe, your refusal would knock everything on the head. I thought that matter was all fixed. What more can I do?" But Ratcliffe had no mind to let the President out of his clutches so easily, and a long conversation followed, during which he forced his antagonist into the position of urging him to take the Treasury in order to prevent some undefined but portentous mischief in the Senate. All that could be agreed upon was that Ratcliffe should give a positive answer within two days, and on that agreement he took his leave. As he passed through the corridor, a number of gentlemen were waiting for interviews with the President, and among them was the whole Pennsylvania delegation, ready for biz, as Mr. Tom Lord remarked with a wink. Ratcliffe drew Krebs aside, and they exchanged a few words as he passed out. Ten minutes afterwards the delegation was admitted, and some of its members were a little surprised to hear their spokesman, Senator Krebs, press with extreme earnestness, and in their names, the appointment of Josiah B. Carson to a place in the cabinet, when they had been given to understand that they came to recommend Jared Caldwell as postmaster of Philadelphia. But Pennsylvania is a great and virtuous state, whose representatives have entire confidence in their chief, not one of them so much as winked. The dance of democracy round the President now began again with wilder energy. Ratcliffe launched his last bolts. His two days' delay was a mere cover for bringing new influences to bear. He needed no delay. He wanted no time for reflection. The President had undertaken to put him on the horns of a dilemma, either to force him into a hostile and treacherous cabinet, or to throw on him the blame of a refusal and a quarrel. He meant to embrace one of the horns, and to impale the President on it, and he felt perfect confidence in his own success. He meant to accept the Treasury, and he was ready to back himself with a heavy wager to get the government entirely into his own hands within six weeks. His contempt for the Hoosier stonecutter was unbounded, and his confidence in himself more absolute than ever. Busy as he was, the senator made his appearance the next evening at Mrs. Lee's, and finding her alone with Sybil, who was occupied with her own little devices, Radcliffe told Madeline the story of his week's experience. 
He did not dwell on his exploits. On the contrary, he quite ignored those elaborate arrangements which had taken from the President his power of volition. His picture presented himself, solitary and unprotected, in the character of that honest beast who was invited to dine with the lion, and saw that all the footmarks of his predecessors led into the lion's cave, and none away from it. He described in humorous detail his interviews with the Indiana lion, and the particulars of the surfeit of lobster as given in the President's dialect. He even repeated to her the story told him by Mr. Tom Lord, without omitting oaths or gestures. He told her how matters stood at the moment, and how the President had laid a trap for him which he could not escape. He must either enter a cabinet constructed on purpose to thwart him, and with the certainty of ignominious dismissal at the first opportunity, or he must refuse an offer of friendship which would throw on him the blame of a quarrel, and enable the President to charge all future difficulties to the account of Ratcliffe's insatiable ambition. And now, Mrs. Lee, he continued, with increasing seriousness of tone, I want your advice. What shall I do? Even this half-revelation of the meanness which distorted politics, this one-sided view of human nature in its naked deformity, playing pranks with the interests of forty million people, disgust and depressed Madeline's mind. Ratcliffe spared her nothing except the exposure of his own moral sores. He carefully called her attention to every leprous taint upon his neighbors' persons, to every rag in their foul clothing, to every slimy and fetid pool that lay beside their path. It was his way of bringing his own qualities into relief. He meant that she should go hand in hand with him through the brimstone lake, and the more repulsive it seemed to her, the more overwhelming would his superiority become. He meant to destroy those doubts of his character which Carrington was so carefully fostering, to rouse her sympathy, to stimulate her feminine sense of self-sacrifice. When he asked this question, she looked up at him with an expression of indignant pride as she spoke. "'I say again, Mr. Ratcliffe, what I said once before. Do whatever is most for the public good.' "'And what is most for the public good?' Madeline half opened her mouth to reply then hesitated, and stared silently into the fire before her. What was indeed most for the public good? Where did the public good enter at all into this maze of personal intrigue, this wilderness of stunted natures where no straight road was to be found, but only the tortuous and aimless tracks of beasts and things that crawl? Where was she to look for a principle to guide, an ideal to set up and to point at? Ratcliffe resumed his appeal, and his manner was more serious than ever. "'I am hard-pressed, Mrs. Lee. My enemies encompass me about. They mean to ruin me. I honestly wish to do my duty. You once said that personal considerations should have no weight. Very well. Throw them away. And now tell me what I should do.' For the first time Mrs. Lee began to feel his power. He was simple, straightforward, earnest. His words moved her. How should she imagine that he was playing upon her sensitive nature precisely as he played upon the President's coarse one, and that this heavy Western politician had the instincts of a wild Indian in their sharpness and quickness of perception, that he divined her character and read it as he read the faces and tones of thousands from day to day? She was uneasy under his eye. She began a sentence, hesitated in the middle, and broke down. 
She lost her command of thought, and sat dumbfounded. He had to draw her out of the confusion he had himself made. "'I see your meaning in your face. You say that I should accept the duty and disregard the consequences.' "'I don't know,' said Madeline, hesitatingly. "'Yes, I think that would be my feeling.' "'And when I fall a sacrifice to that man's envy and intrigue, what will you think then, Mrs. Lee? Will you not join the rest of the world and say that I overreached myself, and walked into this trap with my eyes open, and for my own objects? Do you think I shall ever be thought better of, for getting caught here? I don't parade high moral views like our friend French.' I won't cant about virtue, but I do claim that in my public life I have tried to do right. Will you do me the justice to think so?" Madeline still struggled to prevent herself from being drawn into indefinite promises of sympathy with this man. She would keep him at arm's length, whatever her sympathies might be. She would not pledge herself to espouse his cause. She turned upon him with an effort and said that her thoughts now were at any time were folly and nonsense, and that the consciousness of right-doing was the only reward any public man had a right to expect. "'And yet you are a hard critic, Mrs. Lee. If your thoughts are what you say, your words are not. You judge with the judgment of abstract principles, and you wield the bolts of divine justice. You look on and condemn, but you refuse to acquit.' When I come to you on the verge of what is likely to be the fatal plunge of my life, and ask you only for some clue to the moral principle that ought to guide me, you look on and say that virtue is its own reward, and you do not even say where virtue lies. I confess my sins, said Madeline meekly and despondently. Life is more complicated than I thought. I shall be guided by your advice, said Ratcliffe. I shall walk into that den of wild beasts, since you think I ought, but I shall hold you to your responsibility. You cannot refuse to see me through dangers you have helped to bring me into." "'No, no!' cried Madeline earnestly. "'No responsibility! You ask more than I can give!' Ratcliffe looked at her a moment with a troubled and careworn face. His eyes seemed deep sunk in their dark circles, and his voice was pathetic in its intensity. Duty is duty for you as well as for me. I have a right to the help of all pure minds. You have no right to refuse it. How can you reject your own responsibility and hold me to mine?" Almost as he spoke he rose and took his departure, leaving her no time to do more than murmur again her ineffectual protest. After he was gone Mrs. Lee sat long with her eyes fixed on the fire, reflecting upon what he had said. Her mind was bewildered by the new suggestions which Radcliffe had thrown out. What woman of thirty, with aspirations for the infinite, could resist an attack like this? What woman with a soul could see before her the most powerful public man of her time, appealing, with a face furrowed by anxieties, and a voice vibrating with only half-suppressed affection, to her for counsel and sympathy without yielding some response? And what woman could have helped bowing her head to that rebuke of her overconfident judgment, coming as it did from one who in the same breath appealed to that judgment as final? Ratcliffe, too, had a curious instinct for human weakness. No magnetic needle was ever truer than his finger when he touched the vulnerable spot in an opponent's mind. 
Mrs. Lee was not to be reached by an appeal to religious sentiment, to ambition, or to affection. Any such appeal would have fallen flat on her ears and destroyed its own hopes. But she was a woman to the very last drop of her blood. She could not be induced to love Ratcliffe, but she might be deluded into sacrificing herself for him. She atoned for want of devotion to God by devotion to man. She had a woman's natural tendency towards asceticism, self-extinction, self-abnegation. All through life she had made painful efforts to understand and follow out her duty. Ratcliffe knew her weak point when he attacked her from this side. Like all great orators and advocates, he was an actor, the more effective because of a certain dignified air that forbade familiarity. He had appealed to her sympathy, her sense of right and of duty, to her courage, her loyalty, her whole higher nature, and while he made this appeal he felt more than half convinced that he was all he pretended to be, and that he really had a right to her devotion. What wonder that she in her turn was more than half inclined to admit that right? She knew him now better than Carrington or Jacobi knew him. Surely a man who spoke as he spoke had noble instincts and lofty aims. Was not his career a thousand times more important than hers? If he, in his isolation and his cares, needed her assistance, had she an excuse for refusing it? What was there in her aimless and useless life which made it so precious that she could not afford to fling it into the gutter, if need be, on the bare chance of enriching some fuller existence? End of chapter 7